first Bible reading this morning is two verses from Jeremiah 9. So Jeremiah 9, starting at verse 23. Um, that's page 620 in the Bibles. I don't, I don't think we're using those. Anyway, Jeremiah 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, Do not let the wise boast in their wisdom. Do not let the mighty boast in their might. Do not let the wealthy boast in their wealth. But let those who boast, boast in this, that they understand and know me, that I am the Lord. I act with steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. And the second reading is from Romans. And we're continuing on in chapter 12. Um, and we're going to start at verse 3 and read through to verse 8. So Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and not all members have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members one of another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Prophecy in proportion to faith. Ministry in ministering. The teacher in teaching. The exhorter in exhortation. The giver in generosity. The leader in diligence. The compassionate in cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak to us through your word, the Bible. Please send your spirit to us now. Um, help me to speak your word clearly and give us ears and hearts to listen to what you're saying to us as well. Amen. How do you think of yourself? What's the story or the meta-narrative, if you want to get technical, that runs quietly or not so quietly through your life? What's the path that you're on? Who are you in relation to other people? In the first semester of my education degree, back in the day, I was interviewed by the course coordinator. She wanted to know why I was studying teaching, what my five-year plan was, and where I saw myself going in the field of education. Without a shadow of a doubt, I answered with clear confidence that I was intending to become the headmaster of an elite private school in Sydney. Without being able to pinpoint the start of that inner narrative, it was clear in that moment by my answer how strongly it was influencing my career aspirations and decision-making. At the time, I was 19, and I would say it's probably taken almost that many years again for me to not feel like it's wrong to not aim to and work towards being a school principal. So there was a lot of negatives there. <laughs> uh, so these stories, though, they're etched into our hearts from birth. As our parents voice their hopes and dreams for us, I know I've done that over my infant children, and as we get older, school, TV, the internet, our friends, our family, all add layers of complexity to that narrative that is engraved in our very core. 
It's one of the strongest forces that shapes what we do. It's our conscience. It's the little voice that says, that is the right thing. Going to university is the right thing. Doing a trade is the right thing. Giving to charity is the right thing. Owning rather than renting a house is the right thing. Family, career, education, even our voting patterns are all shaped by how we think of ourselves. They're shaped by the story that we see ourselves as being a part of. I'm not trying to say that these stories are a bad thing. In fact, in lots of ways, they're very good. They lead to justice and service, stability and predictability. My point is that the stories that we tell ourselves right in the deep places of our heart are tremendously powerful in shaping our lives and they don't go away or change easily. In my case, it's taken a conscious effort to change my thinking. It's taken being rebuked by people who love me and quite a bit of prayer. And that is actually where we meet the Roman Christians. As you've heard over the last few weeks, they were living in a divided time. The story that they were telling themselves was that they were the new branches grafted into the ancient olive tree of Israel. They were in a new place of honour after the old dead wood had been cut away. They weren't just on the right side of history, but they were on the right side of salvation. This story was shaping the way that they worshipped God. Rather than being united, they were actually quite divided. Rather than being humble, they were being smugly boastful and anti-Semitic, looking down on the Jews whom they saw as having been cut off by God. They were thinking of themselves more highly than they ought, and it led to a dysfunctional, broken church community. Paul was trying to write a new story into their hearts, one which has great relevance for us today. Over the previous chapters, Paul has convinced the Romans that God has shown mercy first on the Jews and second on the Gentiles. But the Roman Gentiles have a great deal of cultural baggage to cast off. Last week, we heard how Paul urged the Romans not to conform to the pattern of the world. And this week, he begins on how to do it. We're going to unpack the story in three parts today. The first part is thinking of ourselves with sober judgment. Two, being a body part. And three, using our gifts. So, section one, thinking of ourselves with sober judgment. In ancient Rome, it was not the done thing to be humble. As John Dixon has pointed out in his book, Humilitas, the ancient Romans were much more concerned with self-promotion, personal honour and the social pecking order. Sabotaging a social rival in order to boost one's own honour was par for the course. When victorious generals returned to Rome, they were granted a triumph, a huge parade where everyone came to honour the general's success. And in fact, if you go to Europe today, you can still see some of the triumphal arches uh, in ancient Rome and around Europe. So this instruction from Paul not to think of yourself more highly than you ought would have been completely countercultural. 
It can't have been easy for the Romans to swallow. This type of thinking was not necessarily about having a warped view of your talents. Um, You know the type of thing I'm talking about here. You know, the people who make it onto the first couple of episodes of The Voice of Australian Idol, but for the wrong reasons. Rather, the Romans were in the habit of self-promotion, putting themselves above others in a dog-eat-dog scramble to come out on top, to have more wealth, to have a better position in the social hierarchy, and ultimately, more glory. Yet, as Christians, Paul has just urged them not to conform to this world. They are urged, rather, to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. To understand what Paul is saying here, it's helpful to look back to some of the previous chapters where the dominant theme is that salvation comes from God, not the other way around. God has mercy on whomever he chooses, and he hardens the heart of whomever he chooses in chapter 9. The potter has the right to do with clay, the clay what he wishes, while at the same time there is righteousness for everyone who believes. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, from chapter 10. There is no pecking order here. The Roman Christians are but a wild olive shoot grafted in Israel's place to share the rich root of the olive tree. It is not they who support the root, but the root that supports them from chapter 11. Just like Paul, the Romans were recipients of grace. Now, Paul, he was certainly someone who perhaps might have been able to think of himself pretty highly. He was a Pharisee, a zealous persecutor of the church and blameless under the law. But on the road to Damascus, Paul was drastically humbled. He no longer thought of himself more highly than he should because he met Jesus. The scales were removed from his eyes so that he could receive the grace of God. I wonder what we would say here in Sydney in 2021. Does the narrative that the world seeks to write into our DNA have us in competition with each other, puffing ourselves up in order to get ahead, or is it nudging us towards humility? I think that on the face of it, we would probably say humility, wouldn't we? We hate those self-promoters, don't we? Insert the politician or Kardashian of your choice. Um, Like a tall poppy, we want to chop them down, anyone who thinks to put his or her head above the rest. However, I wonder whether our tall poppy syndrome here in Australia might just lead to false humility, not really sober judgment. Also, for the people who are doing the cutting down, me, us, Aren't we really just worried that someone else is ahead of us? Do we actually just mask our envy under a cloak of egalitarianism? One interesting thing I've observed in my work as a teacher is the impact that social media is having on how people think of themselves. There's this weird dichotomy going on where people become so image conscious anxious to display themselves, hashtag living their best life, 
with a Y for some reason, or in reverse, their hashtag no filter, hashtag real selves, that there is constant comparison and competition, clawing to get the likes, just like in ancient Rome. However, strangely, what I've seen in my work with teenagers is that actually, this actually leads to low self-worth and has led to a spike in anxiety and depression. By being constantly bombarded by perfect images posted by influencers and friends, it actually tends to make people think more lowly of themselves than they ought. This passage is so countercultural in our individualistic culture. Here, Paul calls followers of Christ to think of themselves as a body part. So, on to section two, being a body part. Paul goes on in verses four and five to directly challenge the fragmented nature of the Roman churches. Being a Christian, Paul stresses, is not just about an individual and God. Rather, all believers are joined in one body, the body of Christ. Rebuking the Romans, Paul emphasises that sober judgment leads to seeing oneself correctly as part of the body. There are a few observations to make about this elegant metaphor that Paul uses to describe the Christian community. The first one is that there is unity with diversity. It's self-evident, isn't it, that all body parts perform a different function, but that they are all equally belong to the body. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, a foot would not say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, nor would an ear say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. Of course not. Even though it was infected and painful, I bet that Bert Newton is missing his leg this week. All the different parts are required to make up a body. These body parts, in their differences, are complementary. All our different skills, all our different heritages, all our differences in socioeconomic status or race all contribute to the richness and diversity of the body of Christ. This left no room for the Ro- at all for the Romans to say, because you're a Jew, you do not belong to the body. Likewise, it leaves us no room to say that because you haven't been to university, you don't belong to the body, or because you've been to jail, or because you don't dress like us, or because you go to a non-Anglican church, or because you voted for... We're all parts of the body. If you're someone who calls on the name of the Lord and accepts the grace given to you by Jesus, just like Paul, just like the Romans, you are part of the body. The second observation in verse 5 is that we're members one of another. I belong to you and you belong to me. Paul is saying here that the different members of the body have a claim on each other, even him. Even further than that, we need each other. We are incomplete without each other. There's been a couple of times when this has been brought home to me with stunning clarity. The first example uh, is one time when I took the rugby team that I coached up to Barker and the combination of work on the train lines, the earliest time slot for the day and the Pacific Highway flu 
Trust me, it's a legitimate condition. Um, it meant that when the game started, we ran onto the field with 10 players, five less than we needed against a full team of 15. We sure missed those teammates. Like a body, the team couldn't function properly with a third of it missing. Likewise, during lockdown, when Jess and I were singing along with the pre-recorded songs on our live stream services, it just wasn't the same without our other members. It just didn't compare to all of us together when everyone is here, the full body singing in glorious chorus, all the different voices singing praises to our God. Something which for me is extraordinarily profound. There's a real vulnerability here though. In order to be part of the body, just like in any relationship, we give over some of our control. In order to have the thick relationships implied by being members one of another, we must first take a risk. The risk of being hurt, taken advantage of, or losing a little bit of our freedom, or taking on potential liabilities. In ancient Rome, being associated with the wrong person might have seen you end up in the arena. For us, it's not perhaps quite like that. But for us, there is the real difficulty of not conforming to the world, the world that puts me at the centre. I am in charge. I make my decisions. I need to be authentically me. I need to fulfil my dreams. I need to do what's right for me. I need to rebel against my parents and forge my own path, just like all my friends. Or, as the youth summarise it, you do you. Rather, Paul's radical claim that Christians are members one of another means that we need to think in terms of we. I wonder how frequently in our decision-making we wonder, how would this decision impact on the body of believers? Being living sacrifices means adopting a posture of humility as we live in community with one another, as a body of believers. So, how to do that? On to point three, using our gifts. In verses six to eight, Paul offers a list of some of the different functions of the body, the different gifts, graciously given to us by God for serving each other. It's these gifts that renew our minds as we offer our bodies in service of one another. Commentators on this section note that while it's different to other lists in the New Testament, Paul includes two main types of gifts, speaking and service. The speaking gifts, prophesying, teaching and exhorting, point people directly to God through his word, just as Jesus did. He was the word become flesh, at every opportunity, he pointed people to God the Father through his words. Where would we be now if not for the words of Jesus? Likewise, where would we be without the words of the people who first taught us about him? Where would we be without the prophetic knowledge of Jesus' plan to return? Where would we be without the usually, gen usually gentle encouragement um, from our brothers and sisters? a quiet word of wisdom that helps us to look outside our circumstances towards God. However, in addition to his words, Jesus also used his body to serve. 
He ministered to people's physical needs as well as their spiritual. He diligently led his followers. He was compassionate on those who needed mercy and gave the most generous gift of all. Paul urges the Roman Christians to do likewise. I know certainly for me that I can attest to the formative power of both serving others and when other people serve me. I was speaking to a a very gifted preacher once um, who was involved in university ministry. And it might have been tempting for him to say, I don't need to figure out how to use my preaching gift to serve at church. I use it all week. Maybe I can be available if the minister ever needs a holiday. What he actually said is, how about I use one of my other gifts setting out and packing up chairs every week before people arrive at church. He was using his body to minister to the needs of the church. He didn't think more highly of himself than he ought, that chairs were beneath him, just that there was an opportunity for him to serve. By God's grace, each of us has different gifts and we use these at different times and places. Unfortunately, though, Pride, and not thinking of ourselves with sober judgment, can sometimes get in the way of sacrificial service, potentially serving with the wrong motives. The adulation of the song leader, the pat on the back to the dads on the barbecue, the opportunity to out-politic rivals in church governance, the glory and power of the preacher who can exert such profound influence on the congregation. That's probably not me, it's probably uh, someone else. Um, This is actually where we need the intimacy of being members of each other. It takes a deep relationship to see what's really going on for people and a great deal of trust to be able to rebuke each other with love. Likewise, our pride can make it tempting to not let others serve us, to sit apart, aloof from the body. I know for me, I sometimes worry about being indebted to people or that I'll be seen to be lazy or not pulling my weight or I'm worried that people will really see the sinful things going on in my heart if I let them get too close. However, this is the very pride that makes accepting grace difficult. I must be thinking pretty highly of myself if I somehow think that through my little bits of service that I'll ever be able to pay back Jesus for the service that he's done for me. It's holding this truth close to our hearts that will help us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. The truth that by standing in the place of judgment in our stead, Jesus was the ultimate servant. In this sacrifice, he grafted in all the wild shoots. He brought us into his body. Our sins died with him so that just as he was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Offering our bodies as living sacrifices, serving one another, is how we enact this posture of sacrificial love. So, fellow body parts, how do we do this? Live sacrificially, not conform to the patterns of the world, not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, transform our minds. Simple, right? 
We do it by constantly reminding each other and ourselves of our story. What's the story written on our hearts? It's a shared story, one that centres on Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice who unites us together in perfect love. We work together as the body because we are united in him. We are part of a bigger story. And so we serve one another with the gifts we've been given and in doing so, we live out our story and are transformed along the way. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, King of glory, you adopted us as your children and brought us into the body of Christ. Please write this truth on our hearts. Help us to think with sober judgment, not more highly than we ought, knowing that we are here because of you. Help us to use our gifts to serve each other, and as we do, please form each of us more and more in the likeness of your Son, through whom we pray. Amen.